One of the things about Easter is that you have all kinds of texts in Scripture that people know and dwell upon and maybe expect on Easter Sunday. Whether it's the different accounts in the four Gospels, is they give you highlights of the women coming to the tomb and all of their wonders of what are we going to do of Jesus calling out to Mary. And then later on when he meets with them in an upper room and then when he meets with these disciples that are walking back perplexed about the day not realizing that he has been raised from the dead and he is there with them. But I wanted to look at this passage because the passage in 1 Corinthians is something that Paul has been building up to in 1 Corinthians because there had crept into the church a whole debate about the resurrection. And Paul was later on in this passage willing to say that if if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. Because this is an issue that is, is central to Christianity in this morning's message that I gave at the open air service. I used Romans 10 verse 9 about the fact that we needed to believe in our heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. That that is part of our confession to our conversion. And so as we we look at this passage, we are reminded in a very basic and fundamental way that all that we know about Jesus Christ, all that we know about the gospel, what God has done, is something that we have received, something that he has given to us. And so when he begins the passage now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. One of the things that we need to appreciate, I think, at times, is that they lived in an oral culture. They didn't have email, they didn't have printing presses. It was what they heard. One of the things that we know about oral cultures is that they have tremendous memories. And so when he says that the gospel I preached to you, that was an oral communication. But yet it was the gospel, the good news. Now, preaching, he emphasizes it again in verse 2, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Now, there are people today that question whether we should still be preaching, whether there are other ways to present the gospel. But yet, one of the things that we see biblically again and again is, this is the way God has chosen to preach to us. Now, one of the things some of us realize is that there are probably almost two million, two, I'm not, sorry, not million, but billion people who don't have written languages, who still live in oral cultures, who still rely upon hearing something for them to know it. And we think about, what we think of education is, part of it is you learn how to read so that you can learn from the past and everything. And so we have people now who are trying to figure out how do we orally get those people ready for the written word. 
something that their families have never had. When I was in Afghanistan, one of the questions I would ask uh, the young people that I was working with in all of the services said, do you know in your family who was the first person to know how to read? Now, different people, depending upon their backgrounds, you know, it was, for some it was just like two generations before. For others, it was like, well, I think we've always known how to read. When I hear the stories of my family going back to when people left Scotland to come to the United States, we know they read. When I went to college, which was something that was assumed in my family, because my mother, even though she was the only girl in her high school to have both a mother and a father with a college degree, she assumed she would go to college. So on one side of my family, I am fifth generation college, and on my father's side, his parents both lived in the country and had what we called an eighth grade education. So he was the first generation after World War II to go to college, and then our family went, and three out of the four got master's or doctorate degrees. But we think about pushing the gospel, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. It's that oral ability to proclaim it. It is a proclamation. Because good news means, I mean, the gospel means good news. Now, when I think about the fact that he calls them brothers, it's like he is inviting them in to have a family conversation. And I think as Christians, one of the things that we need to focus on is that relationship with each other. It is so easy to slip in, I think, and substitute in today's world screen relationships <coughs> where you, you know, maybe you have a thousand friends on Facebook or 500 friends on Facebook or whatever your connection is online. And so you spend less and less time with real people in their presence. Making sure, you know, screens came in after our children left home, so it, that was not an issue that we had when our children were, were at home. But, but I watched my children with their children, with their screens, set limits, set responsibilities. Like, you know, they don't come to the table at dinner. They have, they have to make boundaries and rules so they can be a family and know how to talk to each other and share with each other and connect other than with a screen. We have a whole generation, some researchers are saying, that would rather text than talk. And why would they do that? They do that because they want to control the conversation. They want to control and not feel like they have to perform in some ways. That they look at being together as a performance rather than a relationship, a place where you can be vulnerable. Because when we look at the gospel that has been preached to us, that has been revealed to us, one of the first things that it's, it tells us in verse 3 is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. He died for our sins. 
When I say that I am a Christian, it acknowledges that I was a sinner, I am a sinner, that I need the gospel, I need the shed blood of Christ. That his death was both a substitution, he died for my, me, he died in my place. That he indeed was a sacrifice. Those are hard words sometimes for anybody to hear, they've always been hard. But when we say that Christ died for our sins... That is a, both a confession that I need a Savior and a confession that my sins have been paid for. That I am no longer under the condemnation of death because of my sin, because Christ has been my substitute, he has been my sacrifice, he died for our sins. Now sometimes it's hard for anybody, not just this generation, but for anybody <clears throat> To think of themselves as a sinner. Because they don't think of themselves living in relationship to a creator God who is present. Now we have some people who are on the other end of a spectrum of relationships. Who all they do is live in guilt and shame. They feel that never, they'll never be worthy. That they're always guilty. Now, I'll find out how well I tell jokes in Scotland. <laughs> in the United States, they have mother-in-law jokes. <laughs> and some of those are ethnically related. So I'm, I'm going to leave the ethnic part out of it. Don't just talk about the English. <laughs> but they would say that their mother their mother-in-law was the cruise director on a guilt trip <laughs> the whole family always felt like they were guilty of something because she would be reminding them telling them and if it wasn't about the present they would tell about stories and, and guilt was this haze that was over the family and over the family stories. But yet, we have a Christ who has died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. You can't believe the accusing lies of people that want to judge you and say sinner without saying saved by grace. That Christ died on the cross for your sins. That you are forgiven. No matter what might have happened, this image of Christ dying for our sins is the prelude for Easter. Now, when we think about his, his death for our sins, and you'll hear me refer to this several times, and, and maybe we'll have a sermon series, I don't know, but there are five basic ways that Scripture looks at the death on the cross. It is an atonement, it is redemption, it's ransom, it's propitiation, it's reconciliation. There's all these ways that we could look at what Christ has done on the cross, that images that... God gives to us through Scripture in defining it. Some of them come out of an econ economic, out of the marketplace. Some of them come out of families. Some of them come out of courts or religious experiences. But he takes different words to apply to what Christ did on the cross because it's as if one word is not big enough to describe what he did on the cross for us. 
Now, somebody online put up a meme of one of these little posters things. It says that Good Friday was PG-13+. plus. That you really can't tell the Good Friday story to children because it is so graphically, or if you told what really happened, it is so graphically of an execution and a death, and then he really was put in the ground. He really did die, and he really was buried. I think I was four years old when I went to my first funeral. I grew up in a family that we took kids to funerals. It was part of life. And having lived in a lot of places in the United States, there are different customs in different parts of the country. And in that time, we were living in a place where you had what we call an open casket. And so you would go by, and you would see the person for the last time before it was closed and sealed and locked and all the things that they do to modern caskets. But we have to accept that Jesus really was buried. That's what yesterday was all about. That he was in the tomb. But then, very quickly it says, he was raised. God raised him up. He was raised up on the third day in accordance to Scripture. That Peter saw him, the twelve saw him, the five hundred saw him. We know that Mary and some of the women saw him. He ate, he touched, he was touched. He sat down and broke bread and taught people on that first day and in the days before he was ascended and went up into heaven. But that's what today's all about. And I think it's important in a culture that commercializes almost every celebration that we have. That we figure out, okay, how do we not take back Easter, but how do we just fundamentally celebrate Easter and talk about Easter? Now, one of the things in our faith tradition is that we believe that every Sunday is the Lord's Day, that every Sunday is resurrection. You know, we celebrate the resurrection. And I think that's one of the ways. Now, I do think it is important to come together with other Christians like we did this morning, like we're going to do tonight, to say that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. <coughs> that that's what Christians <coughs> believe. Because we know that that is not true in all of the churches across the world. That they want to identify with Jesus, but that for some, the first thing to go in their faith was the idea of the resurrection, that the dead could be raised. And it's important, as it says here in this passage, he was raised. The Father reached down and raised him up from the dead. The Father restored his life through the Holy Spirit in accordance to scriptures. See, when we talk about Christianity, fundamentally it has to be what we have received, what we have read, what we have heard from scripture. That's where our faith comes from. That's what our faith depends upon. 
And so when we talk about and listen to and consider Easter, the importance of the resurrection, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture, this was something that was foretold, this was something that was witnessed, and the witnesses' testimony was written down so later generations, us, could read it and believe. Now, I know that in evangelism and talking with people, sometimes it is very hard for people to accept that, to accept the fact that you have to accept the resurrection to accept Jesus. But without the resurrection, you don't have the biblical Jesus. You don't have the Jesus who reveals himself as I am the resurrection and life. He who believes me shall never die. And so as we look at and see as he died and he was buried, he was raised again. The gospel is also here in this passage. It is a reminder of who you, who we are by faith. And in the first part of this passage, it's like I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel preached to you, which you received. See, if we identify ourselves as people of the gospel, as people who follow Jesus Christ, it means we have received something. We have received the message. We have received scripture. I didn't go out and create this. Somebody else didn't go out and create this. God did. God gives it to us to receive us. And I think that's one of the important things about biblical Christianity, Christianity based in the Bible, is that from the very beginning we believe that God revealed himself to Adam and Eve. He was able to speak to them, to communicate to them, not just walk with them, be with them, but speak to them so they could hear. That we can indeed receive what God has said. Now, yes, there are mysteries. There's things we don't fully understand, but there are lots of things that we can't understand because he has written it down in our language so that we can translate it into our language. And, and that's one of the things about Christianity that I will say it is a unique mark is that we believe the gospel should be preached in what we call the hearth and the heart language of the person who's going to hear it. Where you have grown up around the family table, that language is a language that deserves the gospel to be written down in. So that instead of hiding the gospel behind Hebrew and Greek and saying, oh, you have to learn this, you have to learn that. I mean, how long... You know, I remember when I was growing up, I would have my Roman Catholic friends who were learning... Uh, Latin so they could understand the Mass. I had my Hebrew friends who were understanding, you know, learning Hebrew so they could understand um, their services. And they wanted to know, why, why, you're a Protestant, why don't you have to learn a new language for religious? I says, because they've brought it in my, into my language. They've brought it into, and I like the thing that both the hearth and the heart. Now, you will meet my daughters. And you will meet my middle daughter, who, when she came back from going to high school in the Netherlands in an international school, 
uh, learning German for three years. She came to a school in South Carolina, and she decided she wanted to go back to Germany. So she literally went into her guidance counselor's file cabinets, found an exchange program, applied for it, competed for it, and won it to go back to Germany for her senior year of, of high school. You know, when she said she knew she knew German, when she started to pray in German, when that was the language that she would pray in, that she could think, in, you know, it wasn't just thinking in German, it was becoming part of who she was. And so when I think about the languages that, that goes out, that people receive it in, that they can receive it in their hearth and heart language, and understand it, and have it preached to them, so they can then stand in the gospel. That present tense that they stand in the gospel, that they know that that's who they are. Do you think of yourself as someone who stands in the gospel? You've received it. Because lots of times it's very easy to image yourself as being passive, but to stand, to take a stand for the gospel, to take a stand for the resurrection, for the, the death of Christ. In that <coughs> present tense, do you see yourself as someone who has received the gospel, who has preached the gospel according to scripture? Is that how you see yourself? Now, the last part in this passage here, and by which you are being saved. See, that's one of the things about Christianity is we can have assurance of pardon. We know our sins are forgiven. We know we've been adopted into the family of God. We know we have been justified. We know we are saved. But there is also this fact that you are being saved. As we go along in our lives, God is still there and working with us. I tell people I am glad that God did not expose all of my sins at one time, that he showed me things at different points, because I think if he had shown me all of my sins at one time, it would have crushed me. It would have absolutely crushed me. Because I can go along and, you know, in my life, in my seventh decade or whatever it is I'm in, and look back and see how God has shown me things. You know, I go back and say, you know, I could publicly articulate my faith when I was seven years old. Now, it's a very sad reason why I can do that. In the fall of 1956, um, most of you won't remember this, but the Soviets invaded Hungary. And in our church, we had some Hungarian refugees from World War II who made it happen that all, I mean, that a lot of Hungarian refugees came to our community and our church had Hungarian refugees living, you know, we had two lived in our basement. So it was a very real kind of event. And one of the, the photo magazines, Life or Look or something like that, there was a picture of a Soviet student, I mean, soldier, standing in the basement of a bombed-out house. And I remember all these crazy details. 
with a, a ringer washer machine. Some of you may remember those. But in front of that soldier's feet was a child that I judged to be about my age, about seven, who had been killed. Now, for whatever reason, in my little seven-year-old mind, God brought to my mind that if I were to die, I would go to heaven because Christ died on my cross, on the cross. I remember that detail of a thought as a seven-year-old, that I would go to heaven because Christ died on the cross for my sins. And it also is the first time I realized somebody my age could die. Because when I had gone to funerals and seen people in the thing, they were always old, older people. And so I knew that I had a grasp on the gospel at that point, but I also can point to you when I was 15, when I was in college, when I was in seminary, when I was a pastor, places where God just brought his grace down in my life in a very special way. And so when it says that our being saved means that we can look forward to God's active involvement in our lives, our whole life. It's not like we have this one experience, we check it off, and nothing else happens. No, it's the idea, and it's, it's um, sometimes I'll bring in the, the background work. It is in the indicative, it is in the factual, it is I am being saved. You know, I was saved and I am being saved. Those are both true. So when you receive the gospel by hearing it, when it goes into your heart, when you understand those two fundamental points of his substitutionary and sacrificial death, his burial, his resurrection, when you say, that's who the Jesus is that I worship that has saved me, that's the gospel that I've heard and which I have received, which I stand, which I am being saved. And so this Easter, as we enjoy our families as we think about things, as we deal with sadness and loss. Um, I will end with one of, uh, it's, it's like I've, I've got, uh, Celeste will tell you I have a bunch of stories that have to get out and I've got to check them off to make sure you done it. One of the hardest Easter's I ever did was in the mountains of Afghanistan. Because on Good Friday, I served communion to a young medic. And I had many conversations with him. I knew he was a Christian. And on Saturday, he went out on a convoy. And it's not necessarily the rule, but usually the medic rides in the last Humvee. But they went over an IED that counted tires. And we know all of this because the Canadians send their team in, and their team amazingly figured out, okay, here's exactly what happened. The tire he was sitting on was the tire that tripped the IED. Now, he was the only one that was killed. But because he was a medic, he was loved and well-known. And so when I got up on Sunday morning to a full house, because everybody in that convoy had come to see me privately, I could stand there before them 
and tell them about the resurrection and what that meant to this young medic who had faith in the risen Lord. I could give them hope in the midst of a very painful loss. And all we saw was the loss before us. We could not see his wife of three months. We could not see his parents. <coughs> but I could ensure them, based upon Scripture, they could receive the word of God. That indeed he was with his heavenly Savior. As tragic and untimely as his death was. The gospel can still be preached as light in the darkest of places in our experiences. And I stayed an extra week just to listen to people, just to share the gospel, to pray. It was because that young man had faith that probably more than a hundred people heard the gospel that never would have heard the gospel. They never would have come to my services. But the resurrection has a way of changing things because it changes the conversation that death does not win. That it has been paid for by the blood of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful that in the darkness of life there is the resurrection, there is the light of a new day. And Jesus, when you say, I am the resurrection and the life, it is such a life-giving, light-giving statement about who you are. And so now in this week we pray that your gospel would go out, that people may come to church or churches who don't normally come and hear about the resurrection, hear about the gospel, and have their lives changed. We pray this, Jesus, in your most holy name.